And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's, um, this is going to come up a bit later when it's actually released, but uh, we, we are now officially into our full year of doing this separately. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Wow. I forgot mm-hmm. all about that. It stinks not to be in the same room because I think there are certain things that uh, it's easier to not trip over each other when we're in the room together. Yeah. Because um, sometimes I know uh, with video stuff, there are definitely moments where you're saying something and I want to kind of add to what you're saying before we get too far away from it. And that's so much easier when we're in the room and you can kind of feel that a bit more. Uh, and so it, it sometimes it, it causes us to uh, maybe trip over each other a little more than we would if we were recording together. Yeah, certainly um, had to cut out a lot of... Uh, go ahead. No, you go. What were you <laughs> yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For a second, I thought you um, were actually again. thinking Say that, that again, I you broke up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I... Um, I'm not gonna lie. I've been I've been struggling with it. Um, I'm not saying that I don't look forward to recording, but like I, I'm I'm at the point now where I'm like like really starting to miss like normal stuff with Sandra and the boys and all that craziness. Sort of at the beginning of the you know the first half of this past year, um, I sort of started to you know I I, I kind of. Uh, I started missing a lot of like normalcy later than most people because I was, <laughs> I was so focused on that other stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just it just kind of it bums me out. I think uh, what Cheer posted something about marking the anniversary of when they they closed up their offices to in person stuff. And you know, I just I miss that space and I miss seeing, you know, Jody and the you know our other friends over at What Cheer and kind of yeah. you know just you know, bullshitting beforehand and afterwards and seeing what everybody's up to. And yeah, we had a routine, you know, like it was fun. Uh, um, especially after I moved, uh, I knew, okay, I'm going back into the city and I would kind of make a, an afternoon of it. So I'd park and I'd go to a cafe and, and do some writing or, or reading, um, grab a coffee beforehand. And then, We'd meet up a little beforehand and, and, and kind of shoot the shit um, with everyone at what chair and then record kind of casually uh, and then leave. And then we'd kind of make a thing of like walking back to our cars and just continuing the conversation beyond the podcast. Um, and that was fun. It was nice. And I miss all those things. I'm hoping that um, the boys stay sleeping so that we can maybe have a little bit of that <laughs> unwind time to just chat afterwards. The last few recordings, it's been very like, we're kind of winding down and Sandra's texting me like, I need help right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm sure those things will yeah. change as, as uh, yeah. time moves on and, and um, we start becoming stricter with the boys and locking them in their rooms and being abusive. No, no, I'm just, no, we won't do those things. They're so cute, Tony. Thank you very much. And they're almost a year old. They are. They are almost a year old. Yeah, it's very fun. They're um, they're getting very <laughs> aggressive with one another. This morning, Sandra and I were just like, we'll feed them first, 
first thing in the morning, give them their breakfast, put them in a little playpen and, Mm -hmm. and then we'll have our breakfast and coffee. And we'll usually watch, um, just a quick show, just have like that half an hour while they're playing nice. And, and Max started like whining and I, and I look over and his head was between his legs and Ren just like had him by the hair and it was just holding <laughs> his head down. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of hair pulling. There's a lot of um, trying to play with each other's eyeballs. Maybe they're getting it out of their systems now and they're going to be, you know, perfectly well behaved as they get older. Mm-hmm. We can only hope, right? <sighs> yes. Yeah. Not too well behaved. What's reading like with them? Like, are you able to kind of read while they're doing their thing every once in a while? Or like, what are your reading habits now that you're kind of, you know, have to obviously keep an eye on them throughout the day and work? Yeah. I mean, mostly nights. Uh, you know, there is certainly like during on the week, I do work from home during the week over the weekends, you know, when they're napping, I can uh, catch a little bit of reading time or even, you know, if it's, if they're just playing nicely by themselves, like, I mean, that's one lovely thing about having the two of them is that they are still socializing when they're like in their play area. Like they've got each other to sort of interact with. Um, So, you know, Sandra and I will kind of take turns one of us supervising one will take like half an hour of personal time. But uh, they're at a point now where unless there's something wrong, like if they're not feeling good, if they're, they're teething, like when we put them down by seven o'clock, they're, they're typically down for the night. So I've got my whole evening to read or, or like I can actually sit down and watch a movie that requires, you know, some attention and some, some thought to be put into it. So yeah, uh, yeah, I've actually been reading quite a bit. I think I've already read like 10 or 11 books this year. I noticed that I've gotten myself into this weird pattern um, because uh, as I've, I've mentioned before, I keep track of, I keep a list of everything that I'm, I'm watching and reading, et cetera. Um, and so I typically read in the morning, first thing in the morning, but what I, I've been kind of managing like four, maybe five books a month. And each month without noticing it, I've I've kind of looked back and realized that I've been reading one short collection of short stories, one biography, um, one sort of miscellaneous, which you could kind of slot into anything, and then one crime thriller book every month for the past several months. Uh, and without kind of really making a conscious decision to do this. And I think what happens is, is at the end of the month, because biographies tend to be a little longer. I see how much time I have left to read a book and a lot of crime thrillers are quick and they're not so long. And because I'm looking at stuff, uh, oftentimes like I'll take something out uh, digitally or I'll read something uh, on my iPad, you could see how long it'll take to read the book and you can see how Mm -hmm. long chapters are. And sometimes that's really been... I know this is all really obsessive and, and, and a little strange, but it's just how my brain works. Um, but sometimes I'll pick up a book and I'm like, oh, these chapters take a, it says it takes an hour to read this chapter. So I'm not going to read this book right now. Oh, but these chap, this book says the chapters, they're all roughly around like 20 minutes. So that's great. And it's funny because I, you know, sometimes if a book is, the chapters are all like 10 minutes long, that means... <laughs> I'll read more chapters because I'm like, oh, it's only 10 minutes. And then you keep piling on and you end up reading for an hour 
but when it says it's an hour, <laughs> I, I'm like, oh no, that's too long. I can't commit to that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's that same trap where you're like, oof, I don't know. The Irishman, that's three hours long. I don't know if I can do that. And then you end up watching six episodes of, even if it's a short show, it's the same amount of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same thing, yeah. I don't know what it is, but but at the end of the month, I'm typically kind of slotting in these crime thriller things. And even though they're easy reads, you know, sometimes there's a lot of substance there, Uh whether it's in the writing or or how oftentimes it will use the trappings of the genre in order to get at bigger themes or 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 just kind of sucker punch you with some subtlety uh and and i think that's why i've kind of really you know i've always loved uh thrillers and crime novels and and film noir um but lately it's just really really hit the spot yeah i don't know if you know besides what we're talking about today i've i've read one too recently, but there was a, I did become pretty, uh, obsessed with Raymond Chandler for a bit and yeah, no, and like, and my father-in-law actually has been coming by to help with the kids and like, and, and is, he devours books. So I also have like a stack of, um, Joe Lansdale and, uh, Carl Hyacin thrillers. He just, just keeps bringing them over. And I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of want to tell him like, you know, pump the brakes, but I'll, you know, it does, whatever. I'll, I'll I'll read them eventually. Yeah, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I've really taken to Donald Westlake, um, and I've read like a number of his books. Uh, but a few other ones I read, um, uh, the Bride Wore Black, uh, which was the basis for a tr- a tr- Truffaut movie, and that movie was also inspiration for Kill Bill, and. A bunch of other ones, but as you had mentioned, today we are talking about Devil in a Blue Dress, uh, which is both a novel uh, and was adapted uh, in 1995 um, and directed by Carl Franklin uh, and stars Denzel Washington. And we're going to talk about both of them just a bit. Um, The book was written by Walter Mosley, and you picked up the book, I believe... It was sometime la- like late last year, right? Yes, uh, it was. Um, I remember I, I purchased it and took it on the last trip that Sandra and I took before uh, we had our kids. So yeah, end of 2019, I read it. We were in Portland and Seattle, but um, you know, I mentioned I had a, a sort of a few years back became really obsessed with Raymond Chandler, and I happened to be uh, in the car and heard an interview with Walter Mosley on NPR. Um, And I believe he was talking about, I mean, he was talking about Easy Rollins, and and so Devil in a Blue Dress is the first Easy Rollins mystery. He was talking about uh, the character and the character's history, but he he was also promoting uh, Charcoal Joe, which was, um, at the time, the most recent of the Easy Rollins books. And it really struck me as, you know, as like I said, I was, I was really into Raymond Chandler, which is that sort of classic uh, hard-boiled detective L.A. in the 40s, uh, but is also uh, uh, super white. I mean, the, any characters of color in, in those books, you know, if they were black or Mexican or Asian, is certainly, you know, they're, 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 those characters are painted in... Certainly, a narrow, a narrow brush. You know, they're often criminals or uh, drivers, or you know, kind of like the muscle characters. Very kind of 
you know, unfortunate uh, racial stereotypes that did not age particularly well. So when I heard that Walter Mosley has, you know, created this, you know, has this character in sort of that tra- that specific tradition of post-war L.A., but from the African-American perspective, I was like, oh, that sounds really great. And it, like a great counterpoint to this, you know, very white dominant characters I've been reading. So, but then it took me years to get around to it because I'm, <laughs> I'm terrible at uh, keeping track of things. Yeah, I don't, I'm not entirely sure um, when we committed to doing it as an episode, but I believe you had read the book and pitched it as as an episode where we would cover the movie as well. Uh, and it maybe focus yeah. a bit more on the movie because it seems to have had a bit of a resurgence lately, at least among critics on, on Twitter. Yeah. I think that's what kind of instigated it is I, you know, I had read the book and I knew I liked the character and wanted to keep going with the series, but yeah, it was this weird thing where every couple of weeks, some critic on, on Twitter that you or I follow, um, would always chime in with like, why is nobody talking about Devil in a Blue Dress? This is a great, great film noir from the mid-90s and kind of is overlooked. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where maybe uh, the DVD and the Blu-ray are kind of tricky to get your hands on for one reason. or You know, becomes one of those things there that uh, because it's it's sort of it's it's something that has a, a solid reputation. Plus, people don't talk about it. Plus, it's it's not readily available. I think it's, it, it's just kept coming up and, you know, we, we realized that, uh, it checks a lot of the boxes for this show. I mean, it is available on like to rent on all the streaming services. So there's not like a physical copy, I think. So like if someone's listening, I just want to make sure that they know that they, that it, they could access it. Yeah. I was surprised by that. Cause after we did like, you know, we did that episode on freaked, which, um, yeah which is really tough to get our hands on. And then I was like, oh, I can just rent it on Amazon. It's not. <laughs> but of course, the people on Twitter who are like, oh, this is it's so hard to get your hands on it are the kind of people who like still need to have that disc. I think maybe there's also, uh, you know, hopes for um, like a featured set Blu-ray with a, a restoration because I believe the version we watched um you know, this movie came out in 95 and it looks great. The movie looks great, but I do think um, it was standard def and it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't pristine. You know, I have like the, this this is um, shot by Tak Fujimoto, who is Jonathan Demi's big guy. And like, uh, as a point of comparison, like if the, the Blu-ray, the Criterion Blu-ray of Silence of the Lambs is just astonishing. It looks incredible. Um, so in this, you know, uh, it looked good, but again, like you could tell, uh, it was missing some detail, or the, the colors weren't as clean, or, or the um, shadows weren't as crisp. Uh, yeah, I was uh, less less bothered by that. Yeah. Um, oh no, and then I don't want to say I was bothered by it, uh, but you know, I, I am. I love that stuff. Uh, I'm I'm a bit of oh a, sure yeah a, a, a junkie when it comes to the director of photography. Um, mm-hmm. stuff in the look of the film and all that. Uh, it looks the movie looks great. So I think sometimes you're just hoping for the best version of it when you're when you're watching. But yeah, so um, the book came out in 1990, and, and like we said, that was written by Walter Mosley. Um, I read that he had, 
had actually written um, a different Easy Rollins story before Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, it was almost like it took place before this, and it kind of filled in his story with um, his friend, this character named Mouse. Um, and then for whatever reason, it wasn't published first. Uh, I think maybe there was pushback with the publisher and basically telling him like, well, no one wants to read these type of stories and no one, white audiences want to read black detective stories. And then he got, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress uh, was released in, and then that first book was released a few years later, I guess, maybe 97 or something like that. And as you said, it, um, it's about this character named uh, Ezekiel Rawlings, um, but uh, everyone calls him Easy. Uh, and he lives in the Watts neighborhood in L.A. When the book starts, he um, he, he uh, has lost his job and he's kind of hanging out in a bar, uh, Joppy's bar. And Joppy mm-hmm. is just like this character that um, comes and goes throughout the book. Yeah, friend of his, um, former boxer, which uh, you know feel, feels like a like a like a noir kind of trope, like the retired, beat up, seen some shit boxer guy. Seems like there's always that kind of character. A lot of the book felt that way. Like, without really getting into details, this is, you know, a neo-noir. It's, it's, there's a PI, there's uh, detectives that take our main character, cops that take our main character in. There's a femme fatale. Easy gets in over his head. Uh, there's a slightly convoluted resolution to everything, um, which pits these outside influences against him. And he's kind of in this position where, uh, he doesn't necessarily have control where he's trying to he's trying to, to, to figure this thing out without letting it overtake him. I think what defines the book, what makes it not just a regular noir is obviously that it's written by a black man and it is about a black man. And so much of the book is about race and racism and especially racism in um, the late 40s, but how that was still applicable to uh, the 90s when the the book came out and how it's still applicable to now. Yeah, you know, and, and the the sort of driving you know, Easy's motivation here is, you know, he's not a private eye, he's just a dude who lost his job and you know, at first seems like in the right place at the right time, very much feels like the wrong place at the wrong time depending on what point in the story we're at as circumstances evolve, but you know, um he's got no job, he's very, you know, there's a lot especially at the beginning talking about him like like I just got to pay my mortgage I have my own place got my own stuff like I just want to I've got my own life to take care of and this uh this this white guy who is a friend of Joppy's comes into the bar and you know says Joppy is this the guy and he starts talking to Easy and he uh he's like yeah he's looking for a woman who's been known to hang around uh black bars and he just, you know, gives Easy some some money to do a little investigation for him in places where he wouldn't be welcome. Unlike a a, a Philip Marlowe, who's just like, he's a he's a grizzled private investigator who's who's seen it all and is very jaded. Easy's just doing this because he really doesn't have a choice. What little he has is such. It's so like, it doesn't take much for that to be taken away from him. And he's a veteran too, so he's he's you know it's this is the late forties, so you know he's he's fought for a country that uh, is not willing to give him any slack. So so he's just sort of like you know, l- uh, you know luck's not the right word, but happens into this line of work. 
so much of the the book too because the book is from his perspective he narrates uh and he does narrate the, the movie as well but uh the movie isn't like dense with narration. In the book, so much of his narration is driven by his desire to to just maintain his house, to keep his house, um, because as mm-hmm. you said, it was this sense of 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 ownership and belonging. Uh, but there's this line from the book um, that I wanted to read in relation to that, where he says, "Money bought everything. Money paid the rent and fed the kitty." Money was why Coretta was dead and why DeWitt Albright was going to kill me. I got the idea somehow that if I got enough money, then maybe I could buy my own life back. But I think that's a, a, a false illusion <laughs> uh, as the, the book kind of presents and the movie presents time and time again that, you know, m- more money leads to more problems. <laughs> right. And even, you know, uh, you know, for my own curiosity and for the um, the sake of our conversation, I, I read the the second book uh, called A Red Death, which jumps ahead a few years. By the end of this book, uh, Easy comes into a bit of money, uh, and he uses that money to to buy um, some property. So he's effectively working as a landlord, kind of run it through another corporation, like a dummy corporation, and just, like, he presents himself as, like, I'm just the handyman. Because one thing he, like, at one point in A Red Death, he says, you know, like, uh, he likes letting people think that he's poor because a poor man doesn't have anything to lose uh, and could kill you for a dime. You know, he, like he's still sort of doing these investigations on the side and like has that kind of image to keep up. Right away, the IRS comes knocking, saying you owe all these back taxes, and then he sort of gets roped into this 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 new elaborate plot where you know someone presents him with an opportunity. Oh, if you do this thing, we'll get you out of that that trouble with the IRS. You can keep what's yours. Yeah, it's not none of it is safe. It's it's always someone who's always going to be trying to take it away from him. You had mentioned that he was uh, fought in the war, and there's a lot of passages in the early portion of the book where he's kind of talking about his time in the war and how um, he felt that, you know, he signed up because he thought it was a hope of being unified uh, with his country, but he realized that it was the army was just as segregated as the South where he was from the other soldiers kind of treated him improperly because of who he was. Well, well, I, let me just read this other line. Uh, I think it will illustrate it better than I can. Um, I was trained how to kill men, but white men weren't anxious to see a gun in my hands. They didn't want to see me spill white blood. They said we didn't have the discipline or the minds for a war effort, but they were really scared that we might get to like the kind of freedom that death dealing brings. So often in this book too, while he is investigating where this woman Daphne Monet is um, and things start to unfurl, you see that same notion kind of rear its ugly head where anytime he gets a little, makes any headway, that freedom that death brings that he mentions um, causes people to kind of fight back. You know, and in a way that, that that sort of, you know, that thinking um, on the part of those white soldiers kind of carries over into this is, um, you know, he, he, as you mentioned, there are a lot of the, the sort of hard boiled and noir tropes in this, like, uh, like the detectives who, um, you know, rough up the, the, the narrator and bring him into jail to question him. Um, in this interview with NPR that I had mentioned earlier, Mosley talks about how, uh, you know, he's, he's, 
a bit more human than a lot of the classic hard-boiled detectives. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's, you know, a black man in the 40s or 50s. So Mosley says, you arrest Sam Spade, and he just says, you know I'll just stay here in jail. I don't have to answer you. But if you have a child at home that needs to be fed or protected, or you have to figure out a way to answer that policeman's questions and also get yourself out of jail. You know, they're, they're not... Um, you know, they'll let a Sam Spade or a Philip Marlowe just kind of sweat it out and let him go the next day. But, you know, with Easy Rollins, there is <laughs> a constant sort of a very real threat that, like, he might not walk out of there. Yeah, uh, he says uh, this great line, which I thought uh, felt so, you know, for something that was written in the 90s, just felt so unfortunately uh, applicable to now. Um, where he says it's hard acting innocent when you are, but the cops know that you aren't like, that's just, that's sort of like they're determined to say you did this and they're going to pin it on you regardless because they just, they don't value your life. And like you said, when it comes to a lot of noir, there's always that scene where the PI or, or our, the protagonist gets kind of taken in to talk to the cops and he gets roughed up a bit. And then oftentimes it's just kind of, okay, well, we can't do anything. So you're on your own. Yeah. I mean, uh, LA has a, you know, it has certainly earned its reputation and it's sort of characterization in these types of stories as being, you know, a city where that racism runs deep in the local politics or the local power structure. There's um, a book I read a while back called, called LA Noir, uh, written by a guy named John Bunton, which is, you know, sort of about the origins of LA and it's the sort of rise of the LA crime world and the Los Angeles police are all sort of intermeshed in this, you know, deep seated racism. I think the the city itself, when it was being developed, was pitched as a white haven, <laughs> and you know, and and that just that that sort of thinking and mentality is where you get to you know the Watts riots and then you know Rodney King and then going from there it's it's all sort of uh, it's not just a noir trope, which is you know like you were saying how this book that's thirty years old can be so prescient because it's it's just. It's 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 this openly discussed thing that's not being dealt with. That's the thing. So I, I mentioned up front how I, I like a lot of noir stuff and a lot of crime thrillers and, and detective stories because they are kind of easy reads. And this is definitely an easy, pulpy read. And I would even say that the movie kind of leans more into the pulp trappings and kind of... Um, the subtext is still there. A lot of these things we're talking about are still in the movie, but um, there's not as much of it, I guess, is what you could say. The movie probably isn't as good, but only because the book has that space to get into these things a bit more. It talks a lot about, like I said, uh, Easy's time uh, in the army, his perception of owning a home, his job before um, this story takes place how he lost his job, how he was treated in that old job. Uh, and a lot of the um, secondary characters get uh, a little more time to, uh, they get a little more space to be fleshed out. Um, in particular, one character named Mouse, who's like a friend of his from um, where he grew up, who comes into the story later on. We get a little bit more backstory about Mouse and their relationship than we do in the movie. So Mouse is played by Don Cheadle in the movie. Was this his first movie or his breakout? 
Uh, no, he, he, this wasn't his first movie. He was in a bunch uh, of movies beforehand, and he was on TV. He was in, um, oh, what's it called? Golden, was he in the Golden Girls spinoff? Yes, yeah, Golden Palace, I think it's called, right? Um, he was like a, he worked, so uh, for people unfamiliar, after uh, B. Arthur was tired of the Golden Girls, the the remaining Golden Girls um wanted to keep going so they did like a spin-off show where they all owned a, a motel <laughs> and so Don Cheadle kind of ran the, the motel with um with oh, Rose okay. and, but, and, but, and crew. but this was kind of like this was kind of like a a, a big like head turning role for for him on film I think before this he was in a, a few movies he was in Colors I don't know if you ever heard of Colors it's a cop movie um probably hasn't aged well uh, and and Meteor Man, uh, have you ever heard of Meteor Man? Uh, yes, I have. I remember seeing the ads in comic books when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is, I think, like uh, a lot of the reviews at the time kind of single him out. I know um, Denzel was kind of um, already known for things like Glory and Malcolm X and um, a few other Spike Lee movies. Maybe there were expectations for him, and he's a fantastic in this. I think um, maybe a small problem of of reading the book and and being aware that he was easy in the movie before seeing the movie. Like uh, reading the book, I was like just pictured Denzel the whole time, um, which isn't necessarily mm-hmm. a bad thing because he's he's fucking Denzel Washington, uh, and you know he's just so consistent that I think he's taken for granted, especially you know, when he did that big run with Tony Scott and, uh, and, and people were kind of like, well, why are you doing these type of movies when you're Oscar, Oscar caliber, but you watch him in those movies and he's just, he's amazing. He makes them like, he's just, he's yeah. so good no matter what he does. Um, but yeah, Don Cheadle really is incredible in this. Uh, there's a moment where, you know, they have to take Joppy, uh, with them along with them in a car, uh, in order to go find, um, this character, uh, Daphne, they leave Mouse alone in the car with 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 Joppy, and we find out some things about Joppy, and and then uh, once Easy gets back to the car, finds out Joppy's dead, and and Mouse is just like, well, you know, you had you left him alone with me. What was I supposed to do? I had to go rescue you, and and it's just such a great great moment. Uh, he's so good at being like really scary yet funny at the same time, and. And he only comes in like in the back half of the movie too, uh, and and leaves a, a pretty big impression. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Mouse is one of those characters that he he's uh, he's just like so much on the side of not being a complete lunatic that you can see why he's Easy's friend. But like, yeah, I mean, he's completely dangerous and terrifying to pretty much everybody else, and is not. And not, that's not to say he's above <laughs> waving a gun in his best friend's face either. <laughs> yeah, he he always carries around two guns too. He plays a, a big role in the second book, um, which I I read before actually watching the movie, and it was really I was really excited to see how uh, Mouse how that portrayal comes across, and and Don Cheadle does not disappoint. Um, to a point you were making earlier about you know the differences between the book and the movie, um, the book like a lot of hard-boiled fiction gets very like naughty and i don't mean like like racy i mean like the plot just there's double and triple crosses and you know there's a lot of characters that are in it briefly and are kind of like false leads and dead ends and the movie really 
um, streamlines the plot, really kind of whittles it down uh, to something that's a little more manageable, um, easier to keep track of. And there's a montage where Easy's like interviewing or like like questioning people, and like each like cut, you're like, oh, okay, I remember that chapter. I remember that chapter. I remember <laughs> that chapter. Um, and it doesn't, you know, not that um, the the way it adapts the plot works. I also I think I think they could have streamlined it a little more. I think there was maybe like if they had maybe dropped one additional subplot, they could have maybe had a little bit more of that room that that sort of for easy's inner life that you were talking about his relationship to people as it is i feel like the movie is very like boom 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 like it just it's one sort of lead after another and it's it's all it's all plot not that that's bad but i think you know the the piece that's missing from the book for me isn't the the convoluted story so much as those those quieter moments in between and and that that inner headspace and you know maybe this is a case where um more voiceover, you know, is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, because again, that's like that's 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 a part of this genre, and the voiceover that's featured isn't bad. Using that with some restraint, and and but using it to color in more of the background. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's really that's really my only sort of beef with the movie is that it, it does not give the characters those time those moments to breathe. Yeah, I like I like I said, I think it's it's a bit pulpier. Um, I think the movie excels in its um, its its visuals because it really nails this time period um, with um, its aesthetic, with its colors, the tones, the outfits, um, how sweaty everyone looks at all times, um, and mm-hmm. I think that the cast is is mostly um, all pitch perfect. I think. Um, so we, we've alluded to the femme fatale, um, and the character's name is Daphne Monet, and that is played by Jennifer Beals, um, probably most famously known from Flashdance, um, which, you know, I don't think I've ever seen. Have you ever seen Flashdance? I haven't. Future episode, maybe? All I know is that- Add it to the stack. All I know is that image of her, like, l- leaning back and, and then the water dropping the on The water, her. yeah. Yeah, right. I know she's done a lot of television, especially most recently. You know, I read some reviews that said that she kind of stood out, that she maybe wasn't, maybe it wasn't as mysterious as she needed to be. I think a lot of the problems are basically, I don't know if they exist if you haven't read the book necessarily, because the book really fleshes out her character quite a bit. Um, In the movie, she's just sort of driving the plot a bit more. Um, She has... uh, a little more of a physical relationship with Easy in the book that they've just exercised completely. Um, I read that they did film um, a sex scene between the two of them, but um, they omitted it because they feel it didn't add anything to the story. Uh, she may be the one tiny weak link, but I don't know if it's entirely her fault. Um, should we should we talk about the big spoiler regarding her character? Yeah, sure. As you said, um, this character, uh, DeWitt Albright, uh, who's played by Tom Sizemore in the movie, who's that perfect kind of, you know, sleazy. Like, it's Tom Sizemore. <laughs> I don't know. Like, has, has he ever, has he ever, like, not played that guy? Because even, like, like in like he shows up in Saving Private Ryan, and I'm like, why would the army let that guy have a gun? He's clearly a creep. 
it seems that way. Yeah, it seems like he always plays this kind of role, and he's good at it, though. He's really good at it, you know. Um, but he shows up and he he asks um, Denzel's character Easy um, to to find Daphne Monet. So, as we've alluded to, it is a bit convoluted. But once um, Easy catches up with Daphne Monet, they, they discover that she is hiding her true identity because she has uh, mixed race parents. Uh, and she's been passing as Caucasian. She's actually a black woman, but in the book, she has blonde hair. Like they really lay into how white she looks in the book. Obviously, with Jennifer Beale's cast, um, that isn't as much of uh, a revelation or, or as much of a twist as it seemed in the book. Like it really played as like, oh, I, I didn't, like I didn't really see that coming. Did you? In the in the book? Yeah. Uh no. Well, uh, uh, I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a long, it's been that, long enough since I've read the book. That's fair. Um, yeah, she's kind of hiding her true identity in order to cavort with wealthy white people. Um, and there is this passage from the book where Easy says she want to be white. All them years, people be telling her how she light skinned and beautiful, but all the time she knows that she can't have what white people have. So she pretend, and then she loses it all. She can love a white man, but all she can love is the white girl he thinks she is. Again, it's a bit complex, but she was in love with this this guy that was running for mayor. It, it It's kind of different motivations from the book and from the movie. In the movie, I believe she has photographs, uh, incriminating photographs. Uh, and so she kind of uses that to kind of steal money from the guy. Easy and Mouse essentially use kind of use those photographs to blackmail her in the process and take the money. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the specifics of the book, but I know it is a bit different. Yeah. Well, it, it involves, um, you know, she, I think so, there's someone trying to blackmail or extort the man she's in a relationship with is like, you know, I know, you know, I know the truth about her, but then she also knows that his political rival also has a real has a uh, a dirty uh, an actual dirty secret um, involving uh, pedophilia, so there's a lot of yeah sort of like uh, political espionage kind of happening around around this mystery that that Easy ends up involved with. Yeah, and that's another trope of you know the politicians that have dirty secrets is a big film noir kind of trope. Obviously the. the Maybe one of the most famous is Chinatown. Again, the book kind of spends more time with her and her motivations and her backstory. Um, and the movie, it doesn't necessarily play as a twist that moment where you find out that she's been kind of hiding her race. That could also be part because I already knew it because I read the book before I watched the movie. Um, right. So uh, I, I did find regardless of the movie kind of being a bit pulpier, I did feel like the big broader things that the book were trying to say were kind of in there. And I thought that the ending was subtly a bit of a gut punch. I thought it was pretty impressive what he pulled off visually and saying what the book was able to say in just like a few images where easy uh, this, the book is essentially the story is essentially easy becoming a PI. Cause at the end he's like, okay, I think I may go into business for myself. Um, but 
he has enough money to to keep his home uh and and the movie ends with him you know on his front porch with a neighbor and they're kind of talking about it's almost like shot idyllically seeing kids playing in the yard and it's almost treated as a happy ending until you see cops patrolling the neighborhood and and just mm-hmm. kind of keeping an eye on everyone and in particular easy and i thought the framing of it and the way it was handled was i thought it was great because uh it was stealthy and it wasn't um overly reliant on the narration to make its point uh it this is something that will never go away and it's going to be following easy and everyone in this neighborhood for their lives yeah and 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 i was surprised by that because like again like everything was a bit everything else is a bit heightened and kind of um not as 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 subtle as the book yeah i think i'd agree with that assessment uh i really enjoyed the movie um yeah me too and uh, as i said sort of having read most recently the the second book the second easy rollins mystery um yeah i think they really did uh you know i think the characters were done really well i think uh, as you said they sort of a little more pulpy but still hitting those beats um it did i think uh, if there's any, you know, my real disappointment is that we didn't ever get more of that character because, you know, the next book is several years later and starts getting into some, um, you know, Red Scare and, and sort of McCarthyism stuff. And I know that the the the, the novels continue through the decades. Um, I think... Uh, there's like 15 of them now. Yeah, and, and, you know, and I think they get up into the late 60s, early 70s. So, I mean, really, like, there's a lot, not just... Um, you know, a lot of, you know, there's not just a lot of stories there, but there's a lot of history in, in that city over the span of, of time that Easy Rollins is, you know, working as a private investigator. You know, I, I think it would have been fun to see additional mysteries. You know, I think we think so much of, um, franchises as just endless stories. And I, I don't, I, th- I don't think this would have been that. I think this would have been something you know, more episodic and the, the, the second book does have a lot of character threads that continue through, but it's, it's all self-contained. And I think if we had started with that one, I don't know that you would have been necessarily out of your element. I think it does a pretty uh, economic job of catching you up on who he is, his relationship to the characters that come back, any backstory from the first book that comes forward. But Denzel's just great as the character, and I, I feel knowing that there are all these other stories, I feel kind of cheated not yeah. getting to see him be Easy Rollins another time. He's just unbelievably good looking, <laughs> and I, I don't. He's like a movie star. Like I feel like that's something that's sort of kind of gone gone away recently, and, and you can see it with some people, obviously. But I don't think like that that kind of presence that he has is, is something that. I don't know if it could be learned necessarily. There's just something about him. And like, he's just so, he's always fun to watch. He's always reliable. And yeah, it's, it's a a bit of a tragedy that we didn't get more of those. But like you said, there's so many of them. They could do one right now and he could just be older Denzel, you know? Yeah. I mean, they could do like Little Green or Charcoal Joe. I mean, it's, it's roughly the amount of time between those books and Devil in a Blue Dress with, you know, the... 25 years since since he did it that'd be great the movie cost 27 million to make and it made 17 million so i mean that is considered a bomb unfortunately and um i don't think it 
did particularly well um, selling on the home video market. It seems like one of those things that, you know, if you had stumbled upon it, maybe when uh, like HBO or something, when you were younger, you'd be like, like, this is, feels like a movie that I would tell everyone about for all the weighted themes that it, it covers. Uh, it is still a fun thriller in mystery. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's when this genre really clicks for me is when, you know, that subtext or not even subtext. I mean, this is all pretty like, you didn't have to read too closely between the lines to get at what they're dealing with here but like but like you said it is like an exciting uh, who done it kind of thing yeah but to that point too uh, i don't know if the mystery element of it uh is the best part like you could almost like and we've talked about this before too it's not always about the who did it or the what it's the how these things come together and and the bigger story that or the message that this thing has Easy is such a compelling character right from the get-go um, in both the book and the movie. Really, that's what makes this thing cruise along. You know, it's not really about the big mystery of, you know, who exactly and where is um, Daphne Monet. That's not as interesting as, as, as how Easy is going to react to that and get out of these, you know, sticky situations that he's constantly finding himself in. A Red Death really sort of elaborates on you know the sort of moral sort of moral ambiguity about what he's doing um uh the plot really spent you know it's really about him doing some work for the fbi sort of sussing out uh potential communist agitators who are trying to um ingratiate themselves into the black community so he's like you know i'm here i am i'm i'm sort of you know, it kind of feels like he's almost, you know, betraying his own people by sort of spying on them for the FBI. He he strikes up this really unexpected, you know, a relationship he's not expecting with this Eastern European uh, Jewish man who is, you know, the one he's spying on. But, you know, he's a guy who survived the Holocaust and he's, you know, and he's, I don't look like you, but I understand what it means to be like, to th- be thrown away and, and crushed out by by the powers that be and like so it really kind of gets into that explores the effect of working in that gray area on on a person you know like like philip marlowe is jaded to the point where he he (laughs) he's rarely phased by what he's doing or if he loses sleep over it it's maybe a night and then he has a gimlet and he's he's over it you think, but do you think someone like Philip Marlowe is probably a little more dead inside? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because to me, it feels like Easy is always pushing against this notion of who he's supposed to be. You know, like how society defines him, and he's kind of angry at everyone for 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 putting him in that position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the question. It in in a red death is you know is it worth it for me to sell out my community just to keep what i have after you know the first book which is so much about him like it's like i'm you know I, this is an opportunity for me to to hang on to and protect what's mine the second book kind of delves into like what the cost of that really is yeah um i have this other quote from the book where he says uh Sometimes when a white man of authority would catch me off guard, I'd empty my head of everything so I was unable to say anything. The less you know, the less trouble you find, they used to say. 
I hated myself for it, but I also hated white people and colored people too for making me that way. This kind of like, these are the restraints that I've been put under and I'm mad at everyone for it. And you, he's justified. <laughs> you never question him, I think, throughout the whole book. And he does some some pretty he does some pretty dirty things throughout the book he they you know we haven't really talked about it but he he does help kind of they do murder a couple of people in order and and part of it is in self-defense obviously but uh and it is a noir story so you're on the side of the protagonists even if they're they're yeah they're super violent he sleeps with his friend's girlfriend yes. after he helps drag his friend home because he's too drunk yeah and she, puts and his he, friend to bed and then he's in the other room and he, he sleeps with her. And, yeah. Yeah. Which is another kind of um, noirist trope of making the protagonist sort of morally gray. But I don't know. He's just so fascinating. I, I just think he's such a great character. Or do you think you're going to. So, I mean, you've you've you know, you said earlier that you're whether you intended to or not, you're reading a, a, a crime story a month. Do you think you're going to keep going with the Easy Rollins mysteries? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Again, it was an easy read. It was a quick read, uh, but substantive. An and, easy uh, read? No pun intended. Maybe it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would like to read some more. I feel like, um, especially for a series that, you know, like I said, I think there's like 15 books. It's, it's like one of those things where it has enough comfort in it where I'd want to revisit it or not revisit it, but fill in those blanks, keep going every once in a while. I'm not quick to be like, yeah. I'm going to read one every month, but like maybe in a few months I'll read one and keep that pace up for years to come. Cause it just feels like uh, a lot of interesting stuff to explore and the character is great. And again, I like these type of stories and you already read the second one. Do you, do you plan on keep going? Did you like the second one just as much? Did you like it more? I really liked the second one yeah. uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely keep going. Um, it really opens up his, his, personal life in ways that i'm i'm interested in seeing how they play out yeah uh and i think actually I, i'm on a newsletter for a local bookstore and they've been doing like a virtual book club and for march they're doing uh little green which was um uh, an easy rollins mystery that he, he published in 2013 so would you read i don't know if i'd order? jump ahead yeah yeah that's what i was gonna ask yeah i don't know i mean i I don't want to say I don't know that it matters because, like I said, even like from the first to the second, there were character things that came forward. But um, I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that. Uh, I'm, I've certainly consumed plenty of other like series out of order, or even ones that were presented out of order. That uh, you know, knowing the twist, like you were saying, it's not necessarily about how the 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 pieces all come together so much as how uh, how they found all the pieces in the first place. So I want to say I won't be too precious about it, but knowing me, I'll be very precious about it and read them in order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I probably would too, to be quite honest. Walter Mosley has written um, a lot of other kind of books. He's written science fiction and all sorts of other stuff. And I, I read that he was um, a writer for the most recent Star Trek show, I think it was. Oh, really? Yes. Um, Picard or Discovery? Maybe it was Discovery. Or maybe it was an older one. Maybe it was Enterprise. He was a writer for a Star Trek show. Uh, and he got called down to HR and someone complained that he used the N-word. And he quit because he said, I am the N-word. Uh, 
and he felt this was like yeah he wrote an op-ed about it in the new york times uh, which is an interesting read um that i recommend if you're at all curious about walter mosley to go check it out because he has some um yeah he makes a point of saying like you know this word has been reclaimed by like you're telling me throughout my whole life you're calling me this thing and then i claim this thing for myself and i'm talking about an experience that i went through where this used word was used back at me and then i was told in secret that that was inappropriate that i'm allowed to write it but i'm not allowed to say this word um so you know he he elaborates on on his op-ed but then he quit after that so yeah it was star trek discovery one of the most recent Star Trek shows. It's really strange, but you know the the article is worth reading. But yeah, he's written uh, like young adult novels and some plays and some nonfiction and even some erotica. And he has another character, Fearless Jones, which is another mystery in Leonid, L E O N I D. Leonid, Leonid, Leonid McGill mysteries. Yeah, and some science fiction. Yeah, he's a super prolific guy from the sounds of it. Um, I know that Carl Franklin, who is the director, and he adapted the book as well. He wrote the screenplay. Uh, he has a bunch of other movies that are, are supposed to be pretty good. He got a lot of attention in 92 for um, this movie called One False Move, uh, which is supposed to be great. I don't know that one. Yeah, uh, it's supposed to be really good. It's got um, Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. It's like one of Billy Bob's kind of earlier roles, I guess. But it's another kind of crime kind of story. And I think that's cool. Because um, he was an actor beforehand. He did a lot of TV. Oh, okay. Carl Franklin. And this movie kind of got him some acclaim and some attention. And then Denzel approached him. I believe it was to do a different Easy Rollins book. It may have been the third one. It may have been White Butterfly, which I think is the one I had mentioned before was the was supposed to be the first one which takes place before Devil in a Blue Dress. I could be wrong. See, even when they're in order, they're all out of order. Yeah. So I, I think Denzel approached him to make that, and, and Franklin had more interest in doing Devil in a Blue Dress. One False Move is currently on the Criterion channel, and um, so I plan to get around to that too. But he, he did a movie in oh, 2003 nice. called Out of Time, which is also with Denzel, who plays a, a police chief. Nice. Uh, well, that's good to know, because I think I'm going to treat myself to the Criterion channel when uh, we get that stimulus money. You are in luck because they recently put up eight Preston Sturges movies, and I love Great. Preston Sturges. Yeah, well, you know. You can't go wrong no, with no, any of there's... They're all great. I mean, that's besides that, this just like so much stuff is up there. Uh, yeah, it's good. First on my list are Chunking Express and uh, nice. whatever that five-hour uh, apocalypse movie Wim Wenders made. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Um, the the title is the same as the U2 song that was on the soundtrack. Waiting for the end of the world? At the end of the world? At the end of the world. Something? Something like that. So what are your recommendations for anyone who uh, wants to branch off from Devil in a Blue Dress? Um, so I'm going to recommend another movie, which came out in 1992. It's similar uh, in the sense that it covers a lot of, of the same ground as far as talking about race within the context of a crime story. It's written directed by Bill Duke, who's a, a pretty famous actor. And I know you'd, you'd 
know him if you saw him. He's in Predator. He plays Mac. Oh, yep. Okay. He wrote and directed it. It stars uh, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, and he basically, as the the title says, goes on in deep cover. So basically, he's a cop and has everything sort of erased about himself so he could go undercover uh, to expose this kind of drug ring and uh, this gangster who's in charge of it. Um, so he starts selling drugs himself and, and the usual kind of awful things that happen to cops that go undercover in undercover stories. But again, like a lot of it's framed through the perception of who he is and who people expect him to be based off of his race and being a drug dealer, even though he's not actually a drug dealer, he's a cop. Uh, it's Lawrence Fishburne is the lead. Uh, he's amazing. Uh, it's very rare that you see him in the lead role of anything. I think around this time he was popping up in a few roles and it was kind of supposed to be his turn, I guess, you know, uh, for whatever reason he ended up just becoming, uh, maybe he made a few bad choices or some movies that didn't pan out the way he, that he had hoped. Uh, so he ended up being, becoming like a great character actor. Uh, but Jeff Goldblum is the bad guy and he's pretty great. He's pretty weird uh, as per usual. Uh, but yeah, deep, nice. deep cover. It's, it's really cool. It looks terrific. Uh, it's similar to Devil in a Blue Dress in that not enough people talk about it or are probably aware about it, but uh, it looks terrific. Yeah, and you could probably find that just about anywhere. What about you? Uh, so I've got a couple of things I'm going to recommend. Um, fairly familiar titles, but I, I think they both play into um, some stuff we've been talking about here. Uh, first, uh, whether it's the book or the TV series, um, you know, similar to how uh, this is, you know, a hard-boiled fiction from a black narrator's perspective. Uh, Lovecraft Country takes the ideas of weird fiction and the work of H.P. Lovecraft and and sort of, you know, shifts the perspective to, to look at um, uh, black characters in what have typically been white spaces. Um, I never finished the TV series. Uh, I think, you know, I think just got sidetracked over the summer but um the book's fun um worth checking out and the other one is fletch not the movie but the <laughs> book by gregory mcdonald um which is very funny you know broad strokes uh, if you're familiar with the chevy chase movie um you kind of know what to expect but uh you know it is it is true um you know, detective fiction and, and sort of hits that a little more. The comedy is a bit different, but it's still very funny. I read that a couple of years ago as well. Um, and there's a ton of those as well. I've never read the Fletch books, but I loved the movies when I was a kid. <laughs> and I haven't revisited them because I'm sure they, they don't particularly hold up. And I don't know, Chevy is left, obviously like left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. So, but I, I wouldn't mind checking out one of the books yeah it's 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 fun um yeah i feel like i feel like like a lot of movies featuring those guys around that time like stripes comes to mind where like stripe stripes has some great scenes but like is not a not a great movie what are we talking about next time i don't know let me check Bump, 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 bump,
next time we're talking about the Muppet Show. Yeah. Tony. Because I've never seen it. Tony, um, are we going to get into a fight? Are we going to fight? We might, actually. I'm not, like, I know you're joking, but. Um, I'm not joking. Know, full disclosure. This is real. This is serious right now. No, no I, I know, but I don't know that you were expecting me to say that, like, I, you know, I kind of don't get the Muppets. I know, I know, I know. That's why we're doing the episode. Tony's going to make me cry. Uh, I'm going to cry. I'm going to be yeah. sad. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna yeah we're gonna you're gonna we're gonna open up skype and you're just gonna see me just taking a shit right in miss piggy's mouth oh god (laughs) 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 that feels uh whoo that's oh wow yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that i don't even know why i said that that's you're just gonna hang out uh Uh, with statler and waldorf in in the um balcony the balcony and, and make fun of everything from up above no but so like why don't you have a soul tone? No. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so how did you miss the Muppets though? Like you, you were just a little older for the Muppet show. I mean, like you, you were too young for, cause the Muppet show was from the seventies and like, I didn't watch it in the seventies. I watched it in the eighties uh, in reruns. By the time I was aware of the Muppets, it was really Muppet babies. Mm-hmm. The Muppet movies, had already all come out. Uh, Muppet Christmas Carol and Treasure Island were the the ones that came out when I was yeah. like old enough to like. Yeah, I, I just the Muppet Show was just I completely missed, and I think I think it was on Nickelodeon at some point, but I think they may have put it on like in the Nick Junior block. So like when Muppet Babies was still on like Saturday morning cartoons or whatever, like I was young enough to. That was destination TV time. But then by the time the Muppet show may have been on Nickelodeon, it was lumped in with like the little kid stuff. And I was too old for that. So I I wasn't kind of tuned into what was happening. I was just, I was ignoring Nickelodeon basically in the mornings until like Rocco's modern life came on. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, I just, you know, it's weird. It's very strange. I remember a few years ago, like seeking out old Mickey Mouse cartoons and then texting a friend. I mean, like, oh, I never knew that Mickey Mouse had a personality. <laughs> and I think, I think for me, the Muppets have always kind of existed in that space where they were, you know, they were, there were more products than anything else. Like they were oh. a brand, like a brand. Like yeah, I knew them I as that. mascot okay. type characters. Well, I think too, part of is part of it because you were too young for the tail end of it. I I would imagine that the time you could have gotten into it was after Jim Henson had passed away. And that's when it really lost a lot of its, its luster. A lot of that magic that I think people that were like me, who maybe grew up with it or who just experienced it uh, from the beginning, the things that we were taken by, you know, wasn't there necessarily by the time you were ready to get around to it. Yeah, no, I think that's completely it. And like, you know, we've talked about this before because we've done a couple of Christmas episodes. I love the Muppet Family Christmas, but like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if that's just because I can't really separate it from my Christmas memories as a kid. You know what I mean? And like, and I've tried to, and I know this is going like way off topic here, but like things like the Labyrinth and Dark Crystal is like, I love the, the, 
the sort of skill and the technique and the the driving principles behind like those elaborate puppet effects but like i just can't get onto those the wavelength of those movies and i know i know that like the muppets are a different thing no but i know a lot of people that have trouble getting into labyrinth and especially dark crystal i think dark crystal both enchanted and traumatized me at the right age where it's just something that it will never go away it's like lingered for so long but i know a lot of people that that i would recommend it to and and they would watch it and and just walk away kind of cold from from especially those movies labyrinth probably has a little bit more of a shelf life because of david bowie but even then i think a lot of people that their perception of Bowie is just labyrinth and that's it. Like they grew up with that Bowie. Um, and that the hair uh, and the cod piece, that was obviously my, no, I don't, I don't think that's fake Tony <laughs> from what I've read. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that was probably my first introduction to him as well. Um, but the Muppet show in general is just, it's probably just as formative for me as something like star Wars. Um, so that's why mm-hmm. it's this is going to be a really difficult episode, and everyone needs to tune in um, to to make sure that uh, you know I make it out alive. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you have not, if you are not sick of grown men crying after the Snyder cut <laughs> discourse, then listen to <laughs> listen to me make Matt weep. I wasn't going to no, mention I, like, it I'm, all episode, and you're the one that brought it up. So I just want to put that for the record that you're the one that mentioned the Snyder cut and not me, even though I made sure that I got the Snyder Cut released on your birthday. Thanks for that. I think it's ruined my birthday. <laughs> um, I, it's weird, right? Because I think, I think going into something wanting to love it is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And going into something you really don't understand thinking you're not going to get it is also a bad idea. Yeah. So uh this is this is yeah, I mean th- like you said this is formative for a lot of people. This is a a a pop culture touchstone that feels very I'm nervous. I'm nervous about it. Um you know, but I I do I do have an open mind and like I said I think you know there are ele- elements of muppetdom that I like and I really like the philosophy behind a lot of what Jim Henson did, um, you know, is in the is in the DNA of so many things I love, like Star Wars, you know, the Ninja Turtles <laughs> we talked about recently. Yeah, you know, uh, so it's uh, yeah, you know, it's weird, man. I mean, there, there's nothing more, there's nothing cooler than like seeing a photo of like a bunch of people squatting down underneath a stage and like you know those characters transcend being props i appreciate the magnitude of the muppets matt pop pop um sorry that was a community reference uh you know i would say just go into it with as much of an open mind as you can and 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 when we record i'm gonna do my best to try and explain why it means so much to me and why I think that it is not just a nostalgia thing. What, what, what are, you know, what are guests that you think have to be included in this 
watch that I'm going to do. Like I have some ideas. Like I, I definitely want to do Steve Martin, uh, Debbie Harry. Yeah. Um, those are good ones. Peter Sellers, yeah. uh, Gilda. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I, I did watch the Mark, the Mark Hamill one already. Sure. Well, I let's, let's do those. Cause those all sound pretty good. Um, I would say that, um, for me, let's throw in a me episode. If, uh, you could add to those, uh, the Gene Kelly episode. Um, because then we can okay. kind of get into why I love Gene Kelly, but also I think it's it's such a there's a just such a beautiful moment in that that brings me to tears, and I think it encompasses what the show does so well, uh, and what the Muppets do so well. So I think that would be a great point of discussion, uh, and the other ones I think all sound great. I do think that the reason the show works so well is because the guests don't necessarily matter. Ultimately, and, and we'll get into that, obviously, in our epi- in the episode, but because I didn't know anybody when I was growing up. I didn't know any, I, like my introduction to a lot of those actors were from The Muppet Show, except for maybe Mark Hamill. Those things aren't necessarily important. Yeah, it, it being of that late 70s, too, it really exists at kind of like a, a, a sort of cross-section of of culture. Like it's got one foot in in something that seems very old fashioned now. And then another foot on sort of like the, the like cutting edge and sort of up and coming new talent. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I am looking forward to this because I think that, Im- I think I've, I'm intimidated enough that without this holding me to it, I would just continue to not watch the Muppets. <laughs> I also don't want you to like be intimidated because you're worried about disappointing me. If you don't like it, you don't like it. And that's fine. I will be okay with that. And and it doesn't mean I'm going to go and throw out all my Jim Henson books and my DVDs of The Muppet Show and and and, and the movies and and all that jazz. So like don't don't be phony about it for me. So don't worry about that. Won't be phony. I'll just be Tony. Phony Tony. And on that Alrighty. note, we'll see you next time. Waka waka. Ah, come on. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks as always to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.